Hello and welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed Eldafani. Our guest in this episode is Dr. James Dorsey, adjunct senior fellow at Singapore's S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, journalist and two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee. He'll be discussing the influence of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states on the rest of the Arab world. While the Saudis and their Gulf neighbours nowadays wield considerable influence over other Arab countries, that hasn't always been the case. For the longest period of time, Egypt was the Arab world's centre of gravity. But Egypt took itself out of the Arab world's power equation, with President Anwar Sadat's visit to Jerusalem in 1977 and the 1979 Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty. The Arab world was in uproar. The Arab League moved its headquarters to Tunis and Egypt became a pariah and the centre of gravity moved to ultra-conservative Saudi Arabia and the mini-states of the Gulf. The boycott of Egypt came on the back of the cataclysmic Arab defeat in the 1967 war with Israel. The defeat shattered Arab pride and the self-confidence that followed the 1956 nationalisation of the Suez Canal the ignominious failure of the invasion of Egypt by Britain, France and Israel in the same year, and Egyptian President Jamal Abdel Nasser's mobilisation of the Arab masses. Furthermore, together with Sadat's Israel visit a decade later, it sounded the death knell of secularism, progressive pan-Arabism and even moderate mainstream Islam. Gone were the slogans of Arab unity, socialism and anti-imperialism, and in came political Islam, religious extremism and bigotry, Salafism and its Wahhabi variant. Religious ultra-conservatism often fused with political Islam as members of the Muslim Brotherhood fleeing repression in Egypt and elsewhere were welcomed in the Gulf. At the same time, religious ultra-conservatism coupled with autocratic rule created a breeding ground for extremists like Al-Qaeda and Islamic State groups. Today, the outcome is plain to see to anyone familiar with the Arab world. Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight, Dr. James Dorsey. Pleasure to be with you, Mohammed. Thank you. Uh, now we'll start talking about the uh, influence of the Gulf states on the rest of the Arab world. Uh, my first question is, how would you characterize the different influences of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, in effect, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, in the Arab world? Well, I think, first of all, what you've seen, just to put it in a historic context, is a shift from uh, the center of gravity, if you wish, that for the longest period of time really was in Egypt. And that shift, or Egypt's position, started to be undermined when you had President Anwar Sadat visiting Jerusalem in an un unprecedented uh, event in 1977, and two years later, the uh, first Israeli-Arab peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. Um, and the second event that uh, presumably also meant a shift of, uh, of power from the Levant and from Egypt to the Gulf was the 1979 um, Islamic Revolution in Iran. What all of that meant was Egypt was boycotted at the time because of its uh, 
peace treaty and relationship with Israel. The Arab League headquarters that was traditionally in Cairo was moved to Tunis. Uh, Egypt became a pariah. And that, and at the same time, of course, you had the aftermath of the uh, 1973 Arab oil boycott in which uh, the Gulf states became fabulously wealthy as they are today. Uh, and that has, uh, that's what underwrote then the, the shift in power. Now, when you're talking about the Gulf states' influence in, uh, uh, in the Middle East, then you're really talking primarily about three countries. And it's the three countries have followed different paths. So you have Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar. The Saudis, their main focus was twofold. One, they were long opposed to Arab nationalism as it was represented by the Egyptian president, uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser, who's died in 1970, but three years before his death, suffered a tremendous loss with the 1967 Arab-Israeli war that led to Israeli occupation of the West Bank, of the Golan Heights, of the Sinai Desert, and of course of East Jerusalem. The Saudi focus was one they classically, traditionally for years, that's why you had in the 60s a war in Yemen, they saw Arab nationalism as a challenge to monarchy in the Gulf. The much greater challenge was then the 1979 Islamic Re Revolution in Iran. And that's when you really saw Saudi funding of a very ultra-conservative interpretation of Islam, global funding, kick into high gear across the globe, including in the Middle East. Uh, and that... Saudi funding and emphasis on ultra religious ultra conservatism continued um, for decades until the rise of the Salmans, King Salman, and particularly uh, his son Mohammed bin Salman, who started to move away from a religious identity for the kingdom and a more nationalist identity. That was one tack. Then you had the United Arab Emirates which far more than either Saudi Arabia or Qatar was obsessed with what it perceived as a threat by political Islam. And its efforts really were, um, and, and remain until today, focused on suppressing any political expression of Islam. And then you had the Qataris. And the Qataris we're in a very different position from either the Emiratis or the Saudis for two reasons. One, they are sandwiched between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And both of those behemoths, regional behemoths, are on the one hand partners, but on the other hand threats. And you saw the reality of that threat in the three and a half year long UAE-Saudi-led boycott, economic and diplomatic boycott of Qatar in 2017 that lasted until January 2021. And in the beginning, there was talk of a Saudi-UAE military intervention in uh, Qatar. But that was 
put aside, but primarily because both the Saudis and particularly the Emiratis realized that that would put them in really hot water with the United States. The second reason why Qatar is different is that it, on the one hand, is the world's only other Wahhabi uh, state outside of Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism being a particularly conservative Puritan interpretation of Islam. Yet the Saudis did not want the kind of uh, governance structure that the Saudis had until the rise of the Salmans, which basically was a partnership between uh, the ruling Al Saud family and the country's very conservative religious establishment. And so to fill that, and you see, by the way, that same sort of, even though the, the Emiratis are not Wahhabis, you see in both the Emirates and Qatar for that very reason, the fact that they don't have a indigenous clergy of any repute. All of their prominent uh, Islamic scholars are imports. But in Gata's case, to fill the vacuum uh, of not having an indigenous uh, clergy, um, they opted for support of political Islam. And that was particularly pushed because you had a one of the world's most prominent uh, Islamic scholars, Sheikh uh, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who died uh, in recent weeks, uh, who really shaped in many ways what Qatar is today. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, what would you say has been the cultural impact of relations with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states? on other Arab countries? Well, I think, again, I, you need to differentiate. Um, the Saudi influence, well, first of all, Saudi has, of course, uh, an, an, a tremendous advantage in that it is the custodian of the two holiest cities of Islam, Mecca and Medina. That is where Muslims from across the globe and from the Middle East, of course, uh, go for their pilgrimage. So it has, by definition, enormous in cultural and, and, and religious influence. It used that influence to, to basically create, uh, first of all, to create very conservative communities across the globe and in the Middle East, uh, and to build bulwarks against uh, Iran, because much of the religious funding that the Saudis did over the decades was really, the, was really designed to create an, an, a, a Muslim community that is anti-Shiite and anti-Iran, because Iran, Iran posed a, a, a fundamental threat and continues, but far less so for, for obviously because of the revolution going off the rails in Iran. But Iran, certainly in the early days, constituted an alternative form of Islamic governance, one that was had a degree of popular sovereignty, 
it was not uh, an autocracy in the way that um, that the Gulf states are, and particularly Saudi Arabia. So that, and of course, what Saudi Arabia also had, which it shares with the United Arab Emirates and with Qatar, it had financial muscle. It could grease palms uh, and, and, and enhance its influence in that way. The uh, Emiratis and the Qataris were in many ways more pragmatic about what they did. Uh, they certainly, starting in the, uh, in, from the mid-90s onwards, had leaders both uh, the former emir of, um, of Qatar, Sheikh Hamad, and his son, who is now the emir, Sheikh Tamim. And on the Emirati side, Mohammed bin Zayed, who was crown prince and now is um, president. Uh, both are men, irrespective of what, what one thinks of their visions, but both of them are one of two of the few uh, uh, leaders in the Middle East and North Africa that have vision. And their approach was much more pragmatic. It was economic relations. Um, it was, uh, uh, you know, trying to help try, through economic influence, rather much more than through religious influence, trying to uh, enhance their, um, uh, uh, their influence in multiple Arab countries. Now, that is not to say that at given moments, the uh, Emiratis, the Qataris, alongside the Saudis, uh, did not use, if you wish, hard power. So all three states, for example, um, uh, supported various militant groups in Syria uh, at, at various times during the Syrian civil war. Uh, the Emiratis and the Qataris opposed uh, or, or, or supported opposing factions, military factions in Libya. Uh, and in fact, uh, the Emiratis had no problem in uh, supporting groups that were um, had strong elements of Salafism in their ranks. So it's a very multi-layered checkered picture, if you want. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, what's behind the Saudi public diplomacy and interference in other Arab countries. You've already touched on that in the previous uh, two answers to two questions. Which Arab countries would you say have been the main targets of Saudi Arabia? And what has been the main effects on those countries? I think everybody was a target. I don't know that there are exceptions. Um, so, I mean, you know, you have uh, clearly, you have very close Saudi relations with uh, the kingdoms, so Morocco and Jordan, to the degree at that, well, at, that at one point, the Saudis touted the possibility of Morocco and Jordan becoming members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, which is a regional, uh, uh, a regional organization that really only that um, groups the six wealthy Gulf states. It does not include Yemen, which is a Gulf state, nor does it include Iraq, which is a Gulf state. 
even if uh, they're not referred to as such. Um, so, but you also had very obviously Egypt, uh, Tunisia, uh, Lebanon was very important because um, of the rise of Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed Shiite militia and political party in Lebanon, which today is the major force in the country, and Syria because of its uh, very close relationship with Iran long before the uh, Syrian civil war, going back really to, to the early late 1970s and early 1980s, just after the Iranian revolution. So, you know, the focus has been really across the region rather than uh, selectively on certain countries. You've also touched about uh, what's behind the, the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and the UAE on the one hand, and Qatar on the other. Is there anything else besides the, uh, the, the religious aspect that is behind this rivalry? Look, I think, uh, the, okay, I, th I think, you know, we, we, you need to differentiate and look at certain periods of time uh, because, you know, nothing is static, it all evolves. So if you go back to the time of King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed was very influential uh, in the Diwan, in the court of, uh, of the Saudi king. And even though the Saudis have a fundamentally very different attitude towards uh, political Islam and towards the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the influence of the Emiratis in Saudi Arabia was such that uh, you had in 2014, so when King Abdullah was still alive and in office, uh, you had a withdrawal of ambassadors of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt from Qatar because of its relationships with uh, political Islam and the Brotherhood in particular. When the king, when King Abdullah died, there was a vacuum because at that moment, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed didn't have the kind of relationship with the Salmans that he had with um, King Abdullah and the people around King Abdullah. And so, if you go back to the first six months of night, 2015 when uh, King Salman first came to the throne and um, his uh, son became very powerful, uh, what you see is the Saudis seeking a rapprochement with the Brotherhood. Yes. Mohammed bin Zayed worked very hard to and very successfully to establish a relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. And for a period of time, in, you, you know, in some ways, Mohammed bin Zayed was Mohammed bin Salman's mentor. Today, Mohammed bin Salman is a man who's come out in his own. He no longer feels that he needs a mentor. And his objective is to establish the kingdom as the center of gravity in the region, no matter what 
that entails. So what you're seeing is uh, Mohammed bin Salman trying to force business to move its hub from Dubai uh, in the Emirates to Saudi Arabia. Companies have until 2024 uh, to move their headquarters to Saudi Arabia if they want to do business with the Saudi government. You've seen uh, Saudi Arabia curtailing the advantages that companies have who establish themselves in Emirati free zones. And of course, you're seeing uh, a, a tremendous effort on the part of the Saudis to replace Qatar and to a lesser degree the Emirates as the sports hub of the region. And do you think that is likely to lead to a more tense relationships between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates? I don't think it's... I, look, I think it's a situation the Emiratis need, and they've at various times said that, they're a small... At the end of the day, they are a small state. That Now, they've been very successful in punching above their weight, but they still remain a, Saudi, a, a small state. So they have an interest in not having a, a public spat or a split with the kingdom. And you've seen differences, whether it's on the issues I mentioned, you know, uh, on the economic issues, but also over the Yemen war, uh, for example, where the Yemenis at least officially withdrew uh, from the fighting, even if, you know, in practice they still are on the ground. Uh, but that's never, never deteriorated into a public spat. And I think the Emiratis will be careful, very careful to ensure that it does not deteriorate into a public spat. Okay. Uh, with, the re with regard to the Gutteries, the differences remain. And if you look at what has happened since uh, the January 2021 lifting of the economic and um, uh, diplomatic boycott, relations with Saudi Arabia are becoming warmer. In fact, you had in the last week, so one of the things that happened during the boycott was Qatar has a very successful, very uh, uh, prominent and very powerful sports entertainment franchise. It holds the broadcasting rights to the world's major sporting events uh, and to things like the Premier League. The boycott meant that those rights were suspended in countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Saudis, in fact, started pirating uh, the Emirati rights. So the um, the Gutteries and, uh, and uh, broadcast rights company is called Be In. Saudi Arabia created something called Be Out, and simply <laughs> I, and simply pirated. The Gutteries took. Um, the Saudis to the World Trade Organization. They filed a $1 billion damages claim in the courts against Saudi Arabia. In the last week, Saudi Arabia's 
foremost media company has become the marketing partner of the inn. Now, contrast that with the fact that we're now a year and a half after the boycott, and Bahrain and the UAE still have to uh, um, send their ambassadors back to Doha. In fact, the Bahrainis in the last few days accused the Qataris of campaigning against them and trying to defame them. So those relations still are strained. Having said that, as you know, as counterintuitive as this may sound, there is a consensus among uh, the world's major powers. So the United States, China, Russia, and the European Union, that the Gulf states, if they want to get support, want to have uh, protection down tensions in the Middle East. And so what you've seen is uh, countries that were uh, uh, at odds with each other, Turkey, uh, the Saudis and the uh, Emiratis and the Egyptians, uh, uh, the uh, Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Egyptians versus the Gutteries, and of course the peace treaty, or not, you know, not peace treaties, uh, the normalization of relations with Israel between um, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, all of that, I think, means that whatever the differences are, the Gulf states understand they have to manage them. They can no longer afford to have these things uh, escalate. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the relationship, the normalization of relations between the United Arab Emirates and uh, Bahrain on the one hand and Israel on the other. The UAE, in fact, has become an enthusiastic advocate of normalization with Israel. And I've even seen reports that it's trying to persuade Pakistan to normalize its relationship with Israel. What are the main drivers of this policy? Okay, let, let me just... Uh taken aside with regard to Pakistan. The pressure, I mean, the, the Saudis have very close relations with the um, Israelis. They become more open about those relations um, and publicly also more articulate about wanting a relationship, but they have made very clear that they are not going to um, uh, recognize Israel as long as there is not a solution to the Palestinian problem. One of the way rounds for the Saudis was that they were hoping to get a major populous Asian Muslim country to uh, recognize Israel and that that would then pave the way for them. And the two candidate countries were Pakistan and Indonesia. Um, neither of the two countries have um, obliged. Although having said that, there have been in recent months, there was a Pakistani delegation that was uh, did not include officials as such, but included very prominent Pakistanis 
with very close ties to the Pakistani government. And there was an Indonesian delegation to, um, to Israel. But none of that, you know, so there is, relations are developing very, very cautiously, but we're a long way away from a forging of, of diplomatic relations with one of the eight states. Um, now, what's driving Emirati um, uh, interest in Israel, I think, is, is multifold. First of all, you have a situation which is, you know, come to a with the strained ties between the United States and Saudi Arabia. But underlying that is that U.S. policy and U.S. actions over the last decade have called into question not the commitment as such of the United States to the region, but the degree of commitment that the United States has and whether or not it can be seen or continue to be seen as a re reliable security guarantor. The dilemma that the Gulf states have is they have nowhere else to go. Uh, neither Russia nor China is interested in replacing the United States. And of course, Russia is, with given its performance in Ukraine, far less of a candidate to do so. And so the, the Gulf states need to hedge their bets. Uh, one way of hedging their bets is a relationship with Israel. Now, the relationship with Israel serves, in my mind, three purposes. One is a security relationship. And if the reports are correct, you've recently seen the stationing of an Israeli anti-missile system in the UAE. So that's one factor. The second factor, of course, is that the Emiratis' value to the United States is enhanced by the fact that it has established diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, one of the issues and one of one of the items on the U.S. wish list as they try and sort out the relationship with Saudi Arabia is Saudi relations with Israel. So the fact that the UAE took the lead on this is something that enhances its status in particularly in Washington, but also in Europe. The third element of this is that what the uh, Chinese and the S Russians have said over, the, over the, uh, the recent years is that there is no engagement whatsoever as long as the Gulf states don't get their house in order. They're getting their house in order, meaning that they dial down re regional tensions. And of course, one way of doing that not the only way, but one way of doing that is establishing relations with Israel. Thank you very much. Is there any final comment you'd like to make, including where you think Saudi Arabia is going with Mohammed bin Salman? Look, I think in general, first of all, the, 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 the dialing down of tensions in the Middle East 
you know, the Gulf states also have something else they need to deal with. And that is they need to diversify their economies. Uh, their reliance or their ability to rely on um, fossil fuel exports is finite. With other words, sure, for the foreseeable future, um, they're going to be able to export significantly. But over time, that's going to go down because of uh, the move towards green and clean energy uh, in a bid to counter uh, climate change. So, so they have to diversify their economies. Uh, and that is uh, an important driver. That is what underwrites a lot of the social as well as economic reforms that Mohammed bin Salman has introduced. What it's going to ride on more in Saudi Arabia than anywhere else is the ability to create jobs and the ability to ensure that the reform process is inclusive. And on both those counts, the jury is out. Thank you very much for this very interesting uh, podcast. That was Dr. James Dorsey talking to me, Mohammed Aldofani, on Five Minutes to Midnight about the influence of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in the Arab world.